Welcome to Integrative Lawyers of the World, where we believe lawyers can contribute to the healing of the world by practicing law in a way that honors our interconnectedness and that values generosity, authenticity, and integrity. We believe this because we see lawyers doing just this all across the world. Hi, I'm Carrie Raleigh, and our guest this episode is Professor Rhonda McGee. Professor McGee is a lawyer, a legal scholar, law professor, an author, a practitioner of mindfulness, and one of the founding members of the Integrative Law Movement. I was so excited to have her as a guest on Integrative Lawyers of the World podcast. We recorded our conversation a few months ago, so listen in as we discuss mindfulness and the law, as well as her book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Thank you for joining in, and please be sure to check out other episodes of Integrative Lawyers of the World at our website, integrativelaw.com. So as I said in our in the brief intro, I am very excited to have you here. I um, am reading through your book right now. Kim, J. Kim Wright has told me about how you were one of the creators and starters in the integrative lawyers of the world, um, integrative law. There's so much to talk to you about, I don't even know where to start. So how about this general question? How did you go from being a insurance and corporate law lawyer to teaching mindfulness to law students and lawyers? <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, well, I, I think like everybody listening, you know, um, had my, my um, highs and lows along the, the kind of journey to becoming a lawyer. And um, as a, you know, I'll, I should say I'm a, you know, a black woman raised in the southern part of the United States, um, child of the 1980s. And that means, uh, you know, a child, a person who benefited from the civil rights revolution and had opportunities presented to me that people um, like me in a generation before had not had. So, you know, for me, just navigating uh, the the world, right? That arc between where I had come from and where I ended up practicing law in San Francisco um, in a law firm where there was, you know, no black female lawyers, certainly hardly any lawyers of color <laughs> at the time. Um, and even now, um, you know, black lawyers are really underrepresented in the profession. Um, so navigating all of that, it seemed seemed clearly to um, again be both about taking advantage of new opportunities, but also having to manage some of the challenges of, you know, imposter syndrome or just sort of not feeling comfortable or necessarily um, as if I you know, fit in with the types of people that I was now surrounded by, both in practice and in the social world. So just really, you know, finding my way and finding a sense of belonging and a sense of being at home in those settings, you know, wasn't easy. And of course, by the time I was in San Francisco, beginning my <clears throat> law practice, my corporate law practice, I'd had some experience with this from my time at university, which was at a predominantly white school, um, <clears throat> my time in the training to become a military officer, which I had done as well. So I had some experience with feeling a little bit like a fish out of water, doing these things that folks didn't expect of people who look like me. Um, but I really had this moment where after I finished studying for the bar, taking the bar and had like a little bit of time during which I, if I had if I had the wherewithal, I might have been able to really rest and, you know, pause and really just, <clears throat> you know, give myself a break. I found that I didn't have that. I had been studying for so long and, you know, focusing for so long 
that I hadn't, you know, that ability to just rest and take a break. And so it was in that moment of seeing how my mind would just keep racing even when I needed a break, um, when I had no work that I had to do for a while, um, that I started um, turning toward something that might give me some support. And I remembered some of the ways that my own grandmother, uh, who was not a mindfulness teacher and not a person who had a higher education or any of that, you know, she was um, born in the South and had been raised under segregation. And when I came along, she was cleaning houses for other people. But she started her day every day with this kind of centering practice. Um, you know, getting up before she had to get up so that she could have time for rounding her own sense of purpose and meaning. And I think, you know, for her, it was a devotional Christian-based practice. But what I saw there was something that when I had my own moment of like, whew, I needed more support, I remembered how she started her days. And so I was looking for some way um, of, of kind of touching back into that kind of practice for personal daily support. So, um, you know, I just started exploring Christianity by then wasn't necessarily the path that seemed to call me. Um, and so something that really allowed me to focus on training and, and becoming more intimate with my own mind, my own patterns of thought, that seemed to draw me. So I, I got drawn to meditation. And that was before I even started my official practice. So when I went into my first year of practice, I had at least the kind of a rudimentary meditation practice that I was also exploring as a support for, for doing this corporate law work. And then, of course, some, you know, after, after practicing for about four and a half years, I started in, and moved into teaching law. And there was, again, a new set of opportunities, new set of challenges. And I found myself relying even more on these kinds of practices. And at a certain point, I, you know, started to really delve more deeply into how I might prepare myself to offer these practices as a support for my, my fellow students, because I could see how they were benefiting my, my fellow uh, folks in law. I could see how they were benefiting me as I was doing this work of teaching law and guiding students in um, becoming lawyers in these times. So I felt really called at a certain point to figure out, to be a part of the kind of evolution, if you will, of how it is that we train lawyers in ways that might incorporate a place for meditation. And, and that's the short answer of how I ended up becoming a meditation <laughs> teacher <laughs> after all of that history. Well, um, thank you for sharing all that because um, there's so much that you said that I want to go back on. Um, and there's not any particular order. It's just as it's coming to me. But one thing that's jumping out right now is the, the feeling of being a fish out of water. And I think that when we talk about people from different backgrounds, different races, um, cultural backgrounds, that at one point, most people can probably identify a time where they feel like they didn't fit in. Mm. And I guess yeah. um, as a white person, I've become more aware that the times that I felt like that, which I have, mm -hmm. is probably far less than the times of others who are not white. And how has that affected me? How has that affected the other person? Because I know that feeling of not of feeling like a fish out of water, feeling like I don't belong. And that's not a good feeling. Right. You know, it, it's. And I think. Oh, this is going where something different. The other thought, I'm pausing because I might take this out because this is for me. But um, the other day, I just had a thought. The difference between confidence and security. And where this ties in is I have been someone confident in my skill set, confident that in, in my academic work, 
confident in those things where people will look at me and say, how could you ever be insecure? But even with that sense of confidence in what I'm able to do, Mm-hmm. Most of my mm-hmm. life, I felt like I didn't quite belong and that I had to prove myself. So that's the insecurity. And I just, I don't know where there's a question with this, but there's something in that feeling and that realization that I had is, oh, this is what, when people are saying that they, that, that feeling of, I noticed how you were saying that you were often the only black lawyer in the room. You were only the only woman in the room yes um that's that feeling exactly yeah it's true and it actually is a common feeling as you just are as you're describing if we pause we all know that we know something about feeling like a fish out of water feeling that perhaps we don't quite belong so we know something about it and and both and you know, the degree to which we have experience around this varies, right? Yeah. Some of us live in, live in um, circumstances and are, um, you know, sort of socially identifiable in ways that leave us feeling more um, at home in the traditional spaces that we're talking about than others. I'm so glad you used that phrase at home. I was when I was reading your book, it came out then and I was hoping that it would come up in the conversation is because it ties in a little bit with everything that we're saying is that when you're feeling like a fish out of water, you have that internal struggle within yourself. And now I can imagine or perhaps I can't as a white person what it is like to have that inner insecurity reinforced by others around you it's one thing to have it internally but then when other people say oh yeah that internal place thought that you had that you don't belong by the way yeah. you're right we don't think you yeah belong. we're thinking about that too <laughs> yeah well well someone's saying that they think that about themselves but then when you have society telling other people yes you don't belong and yes, so that's I'm what thinking, I mean. You, you yeah. may have people saying, oh, oh, we're thinking that about you too. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and then how does that affect you realizing your full potential? Because yeah. I know when I'm feeling awkward um, in law school in the Socratic method, I, I got so awkward the first couple of years. I was aware of my face becoming red that I could stop. I couldn't think about the answer that I knew, but because I felt awkward. And that showed up in my performance. And so how much of that shows up in others fully realizing their potential versus from when you are at home, because at home we feel, hopefully most of us feel secure and confident and free to be ourselves, free to, you know, if I have to ask a question to my parents, I don't, I'm not afraid, oh, are they gonna think that I'm, silly or stupid they may but i still ask it you know um how do Mm -hmm. we get more people to not just more people to be able to feel at home but more people to create that home feeling for those around us for others yeah i mean what what you're touching on is what folks who talk about you know inclusivity um who talk about um you know, equity and belonging in our workplaces um, as a as a an objective of what some folks um, mean when they use the term diversity, right? Or um, you know, socially integrating <laughs> integrating identity based beings, right, uh, into our spaces. So this idea, what I, what comes up for me when I hear you, you know, really reflecting on the experience of not feeling at home and what is it like to what are the consequences of feeling less you know less welcome or um less of a sense of belonging um than others might in a workplace you know there's there's research on these things you know there there's research on for example a whole body of research on what's called stereotype threat which is about how first of all the fact that um, part of what 
is in the air that we're alluding to when we talk about feeling like we belong or not is what we have been trained to know in the culture about identities like ours versus others and what people might be thinking about identities like ours. So whether it's as a woman, it's as a, a, a woman of color, a black woman, um, again, these identities vary so much and <clears throat> there's like a kaleidoscope of intersecting identities that any one of us may occupy. <clears throat> but in our cultures, in the subcultures, the particular places where we have been raised, you know, we, we, we know that we've imbibed <clears throat> trainings about certain types of people and those ideas are kind of in the air. And when we, <clears throat> when we engage across these lines of real and perceived difference, what we are caring and not speaking about in terms of, you know, the culture's trainings about who, what, what kind of space is this and who are the typical bodies in these spaces, that's in the air too. Those hidden, you know, those stereotypes, those trainings are often, again, even if never spoken, are kind of in the air. And so, you know, we navigate a world where those sort of ghosts are in the machine. And those who study stereotype and stereotype threat, which is the psychological phenomenon that arises when those who are targets of a particular kind of stereotype, especially one that might impact evaluations of merit in a space, evaluations of performance in a space, because not all stereotypes are relevant to that particular thing. But if we're in a space where we're going to be judged by something that we care about, and of course, if we're in a workplace, we care very much about how we're being evaluated. Yeah. So, right? So in those circumstances, um, if a stereotype, a negative stereotype might be confirmed or disconfirmed by something that we do, we become, mm -hmm. the research shows that our performance actually can suffer. Yeah. Because we become preoccupied by the notion that, well, people might be looking at me through the lens of this where they don't think a person like me can do it. And then <clears throat> when asked <clears throat> to perform, our performance may be impacted. And <clears throat> I can do see my Do you want to get a drink of water? Go ahead, take yeah, it. Yeah, I have one, but I always, when I talk about these sorts of things that matter, you know, my voice can kind of start to reflect that. So I'm going to pause for a second. I'm going to pause too and, and take a sip with you. Yeah. So, yeah, people, folks who are interested in stereotype threat can read and just do a quick search and you will find a plethora of information. In fact, um, the I think it was American Psychological Association identified stereotype and the research around it as one of the top five most influential psychological findings of the last decade, right? Because it's been confirmed as a feature in the experience and performance of people of all backgrounds, women who are in an academic setting, let's say a science or STEM mm. setting, and someone primes the stereotype that women don't perform as well on a certain type of test that then they are asked to take. Mm -hmm. Their performance decreases versus the same women, same setting, same test, where that stereotype has not been primed. So, and on and on and on, this kind of performance decrement has been shown to, to be a feature in circumstances where stereotypes are running and when they might be prime, primed um, in the context in which folks have to perform and be evaluated. So I'm just, just naming that as a concrete example of what we might mean by spaces not feeling identity safe or not feeling like a kind of, let's call it now to touch it back to what we we're talking about before, a place where we can all feel at home. And so, the, you know, there again, this is just to say that the things that we're talking about are not just in our heads. They've been research proven across a variety of settings to have real implications. Real so, world yeah. implications that, uh, that it's not just, oh, someone's feeling upset or someone's feeling something. No, there are real <laughs> implications to this. And right. it makes sense at the very maybe basic level of it just makes sense. Look, if you're focusing on something, 100% on it, how are you performing? 
Now, if you're focusing on something and there's a, something going on over here, you're not focusing 100%. There's no way you can perform as if you are. And so exactly. that's when you were talking about how these are out there. So this seems like a good and way by to... By the way, there's, oh. a, there's a book I want to just name for listeners who are interested, a very kind of readable book describing this. Not There are many books, but the one that um, captured a lot of attention is called Whistling Vivaldi. Um, Whistling Vivaldi, and I think and it's by Claude Steele, who's one of the researchers from Stanford and Columbia, whose work really um, helped us understand these dynamics a little bit more. And, you know, its title comes from a story he read of an experience of a black student at the University of Chicago who found himself feeling when people would see him walking through campus, he's carrying his backpack, just like any other student, but people would cross the street or when I say people, I mean white racialized people, non-black people who would see his black racialized body on campus would react as if he were somehow maybe a menace or a threat. Now, this is a student just like everybody else. And so what he started to do as an adaptation and actually as a way of making other people feel more at ease was that he started to whistle Vivaldi as he walked. So if you're like whistling the Four Seasons or something like that, a classical kind of song that people might hear at whites and non-black people might hear, the idea being that this may bring down their temperature, make people understand that I'm more like them than not. Yes. And it seemed to work. And so, but the point is, back to your very point, other students are walking around campus thinking about their their chemistry exam or re repeating, you know, something that they need to remember for uh, a sonnet that they're studying somewhere. But he's having to put all of that aside and put energy into making other people feel at ease. Yeah. And so compared to somebody who doesn't have to do that, okay. he's going to have less, um, you know, just brain power, psychological, you know, capacity to do the thing he came there to do. And so that, that seeing that is what galvanized some of the research around this, the impact of stereotype, how we're, those of us who feel we might be targeted by some negative stereotype are often trying to not just manage other people's impressions, but our ultimate performance on a valued set of tasks may suffer as a result. And those performance on the set of tasks will affect raises and bonuses. Exactly. In other people's experience of stereotypes, right? Because people will start to think, oh, well, this person obviously doesn't fit in. Look how they're performing. Wow. So this, let's go back into mindfulness mm. and how mindfulness can help heal. Yes. That creating that pause when we have all those Oh, I'm, yes. I forgot some of this is going to be audio and I'm using a video. Um, <laughs> the pause of all those things floating around us. Yeah. How does mindfulness um, help heal that? And maybe yes. before you answer that, let's back up a little bit. What is mindfulness? Yeah, thank you so much. So, yeah, the question you're asking, how does mindfulness help with things like stereotype threat and the broader concerns around creating more inclusive environments on the one hand or experiencing more belonging on the other. Um, well, there's research that shows it can help. Before we go into that, let's talk a little bit, as you say, about what mindfulness is. You know, for me, it it's, um, you know, a, on the one hand, a way of thinking about particular practices that support us in becoming more aware of the present moment, more, um, Mm, more conscious and more intentional, right? So it's a way of, let's say, paying attention uh, on purpose and in a particular way. So we're paying attention, we're doing it with intention, but we're also bringing this kind of attitude of friendly, open acceptance of what is and not pushing it away, but like creating space to say, ah, that's here too. Even ah, things that are make too. us uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Right? So allowing more spaciously what's really here to be seen, known, engaged with, related to. 
Um, so practices that support us in opening up in that way, paying attention in that way, or what I call mindfulness. In the forward to your book, I mm -hmm. saw this, um, let's see, where did I put it? It was a nice way of describing it to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I don't know if this is the person who, for, who wrote the forward to your book or if this is in the introduction that you wrote for your book. Mm -hmm. um, Mind, and I'm not quoting it, uh, mindfulness is seeing things as they are is a form of knowing before acting. And taking in what is unfolding, we radically accept the entirety of it in the moment, even as we discern the injustice, the harm, the delusion, or the oppression. Um, and the structural forces that sustain it. That, to me, and in what you were saying before, um, really resonated with me. And just as a, and, and I've been reading your book, but this phrase I looked at again, it just popped out at me again this morning before our interview. And I'm always so, mindful of the timing of things. So yesterday, I'm, I'm visiting my parents and I'm staying with my parents and my dad and I are um, very different points of view in the world. And growing up, like when I was a high school student, we got into a lot of um, heated discussions and I'm getting, we're getting better at it. But last night we were having a conversation and it started getting heated again. And this is when I read this this morning, because as we were having the conversation last night, I was mindful of, okay, I'm getting heated. I'm getting triggered. Um, as it's happening, I wish I could say that I was able to, you know, calmly keep everything down. Not yet, but it did not get as bad as they used to. Um, so why, I guess where I'm leading this is I'm not exactly sure why or how it helps to diffuse situations by being mindful of it, of giving it that space and giving the attention, but it seems like it does. Mm -hmm. So can you go a little bit into why? Like yeah, yeah. Why being aware of it, does it help? Right. Why giving us that pause, does it help? We are taking a brief break from this conversation to ask for your financial support. With each episode, we hope you can see how lawyers and peacemakers like you are contributing to the healing of the world. It takes many kinds of resources for the integrative law movement to keep going and affecting change. Your monetary donation can help us continue this important work by supporting the activities and members of this community. Each contribution goes to promote the stability and accessibility of the movement and to support basic expenses like our mighty network group, web hosting, social media and event management, and this Integrative Lawyers of the World podcast. Because we like to give people choices, we have ongoing monthly options on patreon.com where you can choose a level of participation to match your budget. You can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. Thanks to our non-profit corporate sponsors, the Renaissance Lawyer Society, US supporters are able to make tax-deductible donations. Other countries, check your local tax laws. To help establish confidence in your choices to support us, we have set up an open collective, transparent plan to track how the community money is spent. For ways to support the integrative law movement and our world-changing work, go to the Integrative Law website at integrativelaw.com and click on Support the Movement tab. Search for Integrative Law on Patreon or use the phrase integrative law, financial support for the movement in your favorite search engine. Thank you for your support and spending time with us today. Enjoy the rest of this conversation. Well, yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, it gives me an opportunity to elaborate just a little bit more on what I mean by mindfulness. So on the one hand, it is these practices that support paying attention on purpose with this attitude of open acceptance of what is. But uh, the other part of the definition for me is it is also a way of being with reality 
that is infused with a kind of, let's call it um, equanimity, that capacity to flow with what is arising and not get stuck. You know, psychologists, and why would we not want to get stuck? Psychologists and others name like psychologically getting stuck, stuck as that's one of the things that makes us distressed, that leads mm. to anxiety, that leads, that, that kind of takes us off our highest and best psychological performance game. So having some flexibility in relationship to what is, is a, is a kind of a, you know, a kind of a, a value or a kind of skill that we need in these times. Yeah. So mindfulness actually is a, a benefit partly because it can support us in, um, you know, sort of seeing more clearly what there is to see, including our own reactivity, right? The ways that our emotional, our sort of soft belly body is feeling threatened by something that's happening and we're seizing on something that was said and we're struggling with that when there's also this. In other words, having more of that skillful capacity to like not get stuck seizing on this, getting in reaction to that, armoring up over here, getting defensive, but instead to notice all of those tempting reactions and from this place of greater clarity and self-mastery, frankly, choosing how to respond rather than to react to what is going on in us and around us. The inner mindfulness is part of what we're looking at, noticing what's arising and choosing how to, how to respond within ourselves, but also the outer mindfulness, noticing what's happening with another person and choosing rather than to, to respond rather than react, right, automatically to what's happening with that other person. And, and mindfulness of the inner to outer, outer dynamic by which we're being, we're impacting each other. So those, this is just like some of the interpersonal ways <laughs> that mindfulness can just help us in these hard moments that you're describing. We're having these difficult conversations, we're starting to get triggered, and it could go in many different directions, as we know happens amongst human beings sometimes in ways that even if there isn't physical violence, there's harm done and the need to repair. So mindfulness can support us in just being present enough to choose how to respond rather than to react in these moments when we're being interpersonally triggered. And those choices that we make have such a profound impact on how we are together. As you were talking about that and being triggered and just reacting versus choosing how we want to act, um, just the image of, you know, old school ping pong table, like where someone is triggering you and the ball just goes beep, 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 <laughs> without any sense of awareness. It's like when you're triggered and you're going, oh, they said that. Oh, wait, then that's not true or that's yeah, unfair yeah. or that's an attack. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt last night. And yeah. <laughs> I guess mindfulness is like, takes you out of the ping pong table. Takes you out of the ping, ping pong. Yeah. Exactly. Or ping pong. Ping pong's not the right word. What's the word? Well, uh, what's the of name? That, um, ricochet and that yeah. kind of um, boomerang and all that. Yeah. But one of the things too is again, it's not, so I think it's important to say, it's not taking you out and floating you off to no, no thought land, correct, right? It really is giving you that, that pause again, within which to discern, how do I want to consciously respond? It's not saying you don't get to respond. It is inviting you to own how you navigate a world in which any one of us at any time might be overwhelmed by triggers, might be feeling, you know, that what's going on is like a flood that of, of you know, different things we might react to. In a world like that, which we all feel sometimes, having some kind of practice that can help us who notice when the floodwaters seem to be getting kind of high and we're starting to feel this, you know, kind of about to be swept away, but a practice that can be like a raft, you know, or like a kind of a, a rudder of some sort to help us like 
navigate these waters a little bit more effectively. <laughs> and it's not like a panacea. It's not like you won't feel, like you said, like it's not like you're going to constantly be feeling calm. No, it's being able to navigate even rough waters. And to choose and to own, or really to be in integrity with yes. how you want to be and how you actually are. For Absolutely. instance, saying if I have a value of, um, or I'm choosing to not react out of defensiveness, it gives me an opportunity to actually act in compassion or wisdom as opposed to defensiveness. Absolutely. Um, I'm getting there. I'm not there yet. <laughs> Some <laughs> well, days are I better mean, than others. Um, it's a practice. Yeah. So, and thank you for, you know, for just saying that, because again, like we often feel there's a place we want to get yeah. and like, we're going to be there always. And I don't know, I've been at it for some years. It doesn't feel so much to me. Like it's like that, like, you arrive and you're there for all time. No, it's like, you know, mindfulness is there to help you in those moments when we're tempted to seize, to make, you know, to get ourselves stuck. It, it, it is, um, it's like having this friend when you need one, because you're gonna need one in a world of change. And knowing that it's okay to hold that friend's hand, grab it when you need it, Huh, get a little bit of support, let go. Uh, that friend will be there, right? It's that kind of friend, yeah. <laughs> right? That's if nice. you cultivate the practice, mm. right? It can be there when you're starting to feel, but, but it's not meant to say you're gonna get to a place, at least in my experience, my humble experience, you get to, it's not about getting to a place where you don't feel the need. No, it is because we're human in a, hum, in a world where, you know, triggers happen. Yeah, and they sure do. Comfort happen, right? So how do we, it's really about helping us to deal with it when it comes. And I can see it at the inner level, the for, for yourself purposes at the inner level, if for nothing else, to help you minimize the number of times you regret a conversation or you walk away feeling really bad about it, <laughs> um, yes. it, it helps with that. Absolutely. Now, and then to your point about how does it help with stereotype threat, for example. That's exactly where I was going to ask you again. Thank you. How does this I go mean, into your work with inner justice and with yeah, stereotype? Absolutely. So, again, just the piece that we've been talking about, about the impact of stereotypes, that piece has been researched. It hasn't been definitively researched. It's not like we have all the answers. In fact, I think it's really just at the at its at its origin, we're just looking deeply, more deeply into these things. But there is research that that is gives us confidence that for those who practice mindfulness, there is greater ability to minimize the performance decrements caused by stereotype threat. Mm. So when you compare students, let's say, who have had even a short introduction to mindfulness, we're not talking about people who've practiced mindfulness for years and years, but people who've had um, support learning how to pause, how to take a breath, how to notice thoughts, emotions, and sensations that are arising, how to take a deep breath, feel the ground of support beneath them, remember what they came here to do, and focus. Those kinds of students with those skills, again, I've just articulated in a way what mindfulness can help us uh, obtain in our own experience, a calming, focusing kind of practice. Those students who have experience with that actually um, have been shown to more masterfully navigate even situations where a stereotype has been dropped into the room right before they were taking a test. So it has been shown then to be a kind of buffer against the performance effects of stereotyping in our environments. So that's good news for those of us, whatever our identities, whatever the context we might find ourselves in, who might be, you know, feeling vulnerable to, to the effects of stereotypes. That's good news for those, let's call, let's say targeted potential victims of stereotype in a given environment. But there's also evidence that mindfulness-based practices can help minimize bias. So it might 
for those who might be tempted to stereotype other people. Uh So there's research that, and I talk about both of these prongs of the research in my book and um, have helped others, you know, kind of, I've written articles, for example, for the Greater Good Science Center. In other words, um, the information that I'm referring to is out there. I've written about it and discussed it elsewhere more fully. But the basic idea is these practices are being shown to help minimize bias on the one hand, minimize the effects of bias on the other, you know, help put us in a, a mindset to enable us to better communicate about these things. You know, and all of this is really, really, we know, important right now because we're being, in many ways, I think um, we're finding ourselves met with, you know, narratives around what we can't accomplish in mixed and in diverse communities, how we can't understand each other, how we, um, you know, are sort of, you know, doomed to polarization and to deep conflict, if not another civil war. In fact, there's every reason to be confident that we can better communicate across these painful differences in our experiences, heal ourselves, which is really the the subtitle of my book, right? Uh, The inner work of racial justice, healing ourselves first, and then transforming our communities through mindfulness. That is all actually possible. And, 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 you know, it's something that that keeps me excited about bringing mindfulness into law, into social justice work, into our lives more fully at this time. I love the reminder and the affirmation that it is possible. Um, I agree with that. And even agreeing with it, sometimes when you're, you know, all the, like how you were saying, all the messages around you throughout the societal world are telling us that it's not. So to have someone who has researched, who is familiar, who's, um, I'm just gonna say like in your book, you described your life's work being dedicated to these types of issues to see the hope mm-hmm. and the possibility. That Thousands just conversations. Yeah, yes. Over many, many years. There is many, there's every reason to hope there really is, but it is also the case that, you know, we, if we are uh, inspired to do so, there is a need to amplify mm. the fact that, that there are hopeful practices, that there are things that we can do to um, maximize our ability to work together, to create a sense of belonging, uh, to feel our inherent belonging. I mean, in other words, spreading this good word matters right now because there are those who are amplifying the opposite. And sometimes I don't think we realize that there's that that is part of the work in a culture in which conflict is real to actually speak the possibility as opposed to just sort of hoping that it will <laughs> somehow, right? You know, in other words, I guess what I'm saying at this point in the conversation is part of my work is a call for people to be clear about, you know, it matters how we are in the world. And it matters what we put out. And, um, you know, this is not to say we have to take up the mantle of a great new movement, but it is to say that we might recognize that there are no small moments. You know, we might be feeling really exhausted and it's the most we can do to kind of just get ourselves together at a given time because that's part of the reality of this period, right? It's been very hard for people from all different backgrounds. But even a smile at another person, even a kind of a pause before we miss, you know, the seize upon a particular way that we hear something that someone says and, you know, start to, you know, believe that it necessarily means this or that. All of these very subtle things that we might bring into our interactions with each other, founded by a kind of desire to minimize harm, which I think fundamentally is the kind of ethical ground of mindfulness for me and for many others. It's not just about pausing and clarifying, calming the mind, all those things are important. But why are we doing it? Because we've made a commitment that in the time that we have this on the short brief span of our lives, because none of us knows how long we have, we've made a commitment to living those values 
and the first most maybe the most central one being you know understand suffering understand its causes and try to minimize it try to minimize it try to minimize it for ourselves and for others and yeah. and as you were saying before we can often have values but then act in ways that manifest a gap like we believe these things but are we acting yeah research shows that that's true for human beings that we often have values that we're not acting right so pat ourselves like give ourselves some a break if we're feeling that bring compassion in for the self but also bring again this commitment to i what am i doing today to live my values like let me just not give myself a break for all the times in the past what am i doing today what am what i doing what am i moment? doing today what am i doing in this moment and when you were talking about um as part of that question, what can I do today? What am I doing today? And your call to amplify the positive or the hopeful message. This is going to be a roundabout way, but it does come back to that. Because um, people sometimes think, what can I do today? What difference does it make in my office or um, my community, you know, my interactions at Starbucks or walking down through campus or what, what is it that I can do that can matter? But if nothing else from anyone listening to this conversation, it's also a reminder to me as I'm saying it is going back to knowing that those stereotypes are floating around out there. The, the bias is floating around out there so that if we can incorporate a mindful practice in your office, not just with you, but maybe invite others, even if it's just three other people in your office or in your law firm or in your student body or whatever, that helps us see the action or see the reality as we're in it to then be able to choose the choices that we want. Yes, um, and in and of itself nice. can help make yes. a more inclusive environment. Yeah. The inner work of racial justice, healing ourselves and transforming our communities through mindfulness. Um, a lot of what we've been talking about with the mindfulness goes into what your book has talked about. You go into it in further detail in the book. A few things that really jumped out at me in the book. One, when you were talking about your upbringing in North Carolina and how you were a very accomplished student but yet you had a very personal situation where someone said that's not good enough because you are black. They threw that label. And then at the end of that story, you shared, uh, we're talking about the powerfulness of what we think about ourselves. And there was a statement that you made that even though, I don't know, I, I don't have the quote, but you're talking about even though with the challenges of my upbringing, I still thought that there was more than just being servants for others. How you thought that yourself and how many people um, are stuck in the thought that they are limited right. in that, which then goes to with me, inspiration of your life from your grandma, some things that she said um, to, um, which the, the, the quote that jumped out with me that you shared in your book was, we are all one family we have just forgotten and how that comes all the way through together and so is there oh and then the final thing mm -hmm. there's so much more from the book that i want to talk about but this one i remember being disheartened when we we're talking about when you were talking about how in the 80s in your town i guess there was a um, practice where the different churches of the different communities brought people together because there's when I was looking at things from the 2020 protests and some a lot of to me I was thinking a lot of the problem is we are so segregated still as a country people don't have friends of people yes. of different color if we don't have friends of people from different color how can we understand each other and then you said there was an effort to create that and it didn't work <laughs> Well, yeah. that's, there is a lot in what we're yeah. highlighting here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know if there's a, 
So what's the question? Um, what is and I wouldn't necessarily say it didn't work. What let's just say is, again, sometimes in our culture, we have this temptation to think we did do something and we've done it and we're done. Yeah. And I meant what to correct. I'm sorry, I meant to yeah. correct myself a little bit and go on with yeah. that because although in some aspects it didn't work in society, in your story with your boyfriend at the time, the two of you were raised or were non-racialized with each other, saw beyond each other's color and loved each other. Yes. So that and how you strung it together in the chapter showed that maybe there are parts of it that is working. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, I definitely think that, um, you know, yeah, the, the book goes into into some of what you're describing and in, in, uh, in ways that I, we won't be able to completely unpack here. But definitely, you know, part of what my offering here is, is to help us, you know, kind of um, look at our relationship to what we know about race and racism and to deepen our capacity to stay engaged in in a kind of a right relationship if you will with these aspects of what we have seen in our own lives and what we're seeing right now and by which i mean in part to say you know race and racism aren't really going away <laughs> and they and they you know and they don't um, reduce to any single story. And that's they part of what you're They're not reduced to any single story. Yeah. So there's a story about my own experience of race and race. There are many stories, right? There, so one big theme of them is, well, we've I've seen some racism. <laughs> but another big theme, you might say, is that I've all the way through known uh some of it through, frankly, just, I mean, I almost feel like grace. Like, how did I know as a small child that my life was meant to be bigger than what I could see around me? I don't know. I can't really claim credit for that. And I can't say that there was any particular teaching, though I'm sure my um, grandmother's experience, uh, kind of influence on me, me was a part of it. But, but I certainly hope that it's possible for any one of us if we pause and put aside some of the noise of the trainings that are around us, the socializations, the acculturations that are happening to us, you know, especially, you know, with a rapid pace as children, I think all, any one of us kind of can access a place from which to explore, you know, who we were before all of that, who we were before we even received a name. And now this is, you know, kind of touching into what might be called spirituality. For some people it has religious implications. But definitely for me, mindfulness is um, has been a support for reconnecting with the sense of who I am at this more fundamental level. Well beyond a resume, a name, a family, a, a history, a biography that I can tell some stories about. And that to me is where... I really hope my work um, supports people in, you know, kind of a landing because it's from that place of realizing we all already belong. We all are one human family who've forgotten who we are on a planet where everything is connected, human and more than human world. And we don't have forever to make good on the potential of this very moment, this very life. To, to make it a little bit better for those that we encounter, and, right? So just to kind of come back in touch with our power and our inherent belonging is really what my book is about. Some one of my readers is like, you call, it's called the inner work of racial justice, but it's really kind of the inner work of everything. <laughs> That's what we're getting, right? So this is one a white male reader, frankly, who got that out of the book. I'm thinking of a black male reader who said, I read this book and I feel like it's almost like a, a mini course in how to sustain in civil rights struggles because it does give you this sort of sense that, whew, there's some way of resourcing ourselves for going back to the front lines or 
you know, having that conversation again and raising the questions of where justice is failing here. So it, it definitely is meant to be this, this deep path. And as you know, I start the book with this idea of a, a path, and I have a poem that I've written called If the Path Could Speak, that if I may, I'll maybe speak that here. Thank you. Huh. So it is meant to be a kind of a meditation in and of itself. So I'll maybe invite folks as I speak these words to pause, feel the ground of support beneath you in this moment, whether it's through the chair, the floor beneath that, and beneath that, the earth, that each of us in this moment share each of us touching some part of the earth wherever we are, breathing in and out in this gentle exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide and in that way manifesting our own soft-bellied humanity and our own presence as a part of a living world, part of this thing we call the environment already at home, or else we wouldn't be here. So as we breathe in and out, I offer these words from this poem, If the Path Could Speak. Beneath these words rests the awareness of generations and of generations and of generations that have come before. The awareness that each one of us is a vital part of the earth that we call home is of the wind, the rain, the fire, and so inherently belongs. If the path could speak, it would say, we must assert that which already exists deep within us, namely a sense of kinship with all those with whom we share the earth. In, on repeat, in every language, unceasingly. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. And if we're all feeling that, and imagine that being, that's love and kindness and connection and belonging and if that, if we're all feeling that, I don't want to sound too <laughs> trite. If we're all genuinely feeling that, we're going to get along and it's humanity true. is going to thrive. Right, right. No, I, I mean, it's like, we're not trying to say it's a panacea. This is not, you know, hallmark triteness. This is a kind of profound, but simple truth though. It really is. And to take that into how does that affect the way that you practice law? What does integrative law and what does, or what does being an integrative lawyer mean to you? Well, I mean, as you know, I've been on this journey of helping be a part of the community of those developing something called integrative law for, for decades now. You know, and to me, it really is about um, doing what we can to um, experience our role in law, whatever it is, whether we're law students, law professors, practitioners right now, lawmakers, or folks who went to law school and aren't even using our law degree. But wherever we find ourselves at that interface with this thing called law, it is about exploring the multidimensional reality of our humanity in these systems and creating more of an ability to deepen, you know, the sense that those of us who practice law are, you know, not just these cognitive beings. We're not just these professionals, right, given to a particular narrow definition of what it means to, um, you know, to work, to resolve conflict or to help participate in creating these systems for um, you know, making things happen. It's really about holistic 
you know, it's about, you know, the opportunity for us to participate in healing or therapeutic ways of interfacing in a conflict scenario. It's about helping us to see our own humanity and with humility to, to kind of learn from each other about how, how to navigate this time. In other words, there's, you know, I think there, for me, it's just opening the door on the original medicine that each one of us brings into the law, the law. What is it that we might do to deepen that sense that, you know, this is about a holistic process through which we might heal ourselves, heal the separations between and amongst our communities and of each other and between human, human beings and the planet. You know, to me, it's about the notion of integrative is fundamentally about healing separations. And that, I think, is the deep call of this, not just this subfield or orientation toward practicing law, but of this moment. I feel like there's a reason we just, the whole, all of us are right now in a pause with, you know, the coronavirus on the one hand, climate distress on the other, inequality happening at a radical, you know, kind of levels. We're at a time where we, I feel we're called, called really to, to look at how our systems, including this powerful system of law, how these systems that we've inherited and that we participate in are perpetuating separations that are not to the ultimate good of us as human beings and of the planet. And so how can we bring this sort of integrative, repair, restorative dimension right into our particular role in this system? That's the question that I that is what animates this work of yeah. integrative law for me. And there's no one answer to that, mm-hmm. but it's really about staying engaged with that question. It's a very important question that I think we're all being called to think about and to ask. And your book and your work is providing a lot of guidance for people in that thought and having the conversations of what do we want society to look like? What do I want my role in society to be? So if anyone is would like to find out more information about you and your work and I, I am thoroughly enjoying your book. I have found it personally very helpful. Um, where can they go? <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> well, folks can um, check me out at my website, which is com, And I'm very bad about technology, but I'm trying to get better. And I will have more and more of on my calendar and ways that you can um, connect with me because I am doing different teachings offering book clubs around my book. Um, I offer retreats for, for folks who are interested in these themes at places like Spirit Rock Meditation Center, the Bari Center for Buddhist Studies. So Spirit Rock on the West Coast, Bari yeah. Center on the East Coast in Massachusetts. But yeah, I am, um, in other words, I am available and around. And um, through my website, you'll be able, increasingly going forward, to, to kind of find out where what I'm up to. Also, I have an opportunity to, to be a part of a community that I'm supporting through a newsletter. So if you kind of just certainly sign up, you can get through the newsletter updates about what I'm up to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm out there and teaching and, and, and really working with, walking alongside mm-hmm. um, those who are engaged in this struggle. And to me, that's the joy that comes in this work. It's like, it's not that we find the ultimate resolution of these big, questions that have plagued humanity for all time is that we recognize that in doing the work together there is um mm, some sense of the resolution of you know the ending of suffering in being together in ways that make the most of the moments that we have you know that too is justice and by being able to work together to amplify Yes. The positive impact that we can make and contribute to the healing of the world in all these areas that um, you mentioned. Very nice. Yes. That too is justice. Yeah. Oh, I loved your definition of justice that you had in your book. Because a lot of times when people think of justice, they think of punishment. People are being punished for something that they did wrong. And your definition of justice um, 
I wrote it down. Because... Love. Yes, thank you. Do you want to read yeah. it or do you want to say it really quick? What is sure. justice? You know, I talk about it again in many ways. I'm a law professor. I could say many things about it. But I, at, at, the, at the base level for me, justice is about a kind of public-facing love. It's about love in action. And so racial justice then is love in action um, for the alleviation of the harms of racism, the harms that they do to all of us, but certainly particularly those who are its targets and um, you know intended victims, but really bringing love in action to repair the separations, again, back to that theme, but to heal the separations and to repair the harms of racism. That's how I think of what racial justice is, love in action, with that as a goal. That's a beautiful goal and a beautiful way to word it. Uh, not just beautiful, but very empowering. And so I'm just going to end it with um, repeating a question that you said. How can we be, how can I be love in action today for justice of all types? Um, and may I be open to receiving the answer to that question and to follow through with it? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for being part of Integrative Lawyers of the World. Um, as I said before, you your work is empowering and inspiring and is contributing to the healing of the world. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be with you.